1: This episode is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders. Bag your bookish perks with a 14-day free trial of Book Riot Insiders. Sign up for a monthly or yearly novel subscription and the first 14 days are free. You can wish list upcoming releases you're dying to read, get exclusive podcasts and newsletters, enter to win swag, and access our new release index curated by all the book's host and Velocereader extraordinaire, Liberty Hardy. It'll help you keep track of the most exciting upcoming books. So come on in, your bag of bookish perks is waiting. Go to BookRiot.com/slash insiders to find out more. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode two hundred and eighty-seven, recording on Thursday, November fifteenth. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, here with Jeff O'Neill. We're coming to you from BookRiot.com.
0: It's sort of the um, deep breath before the plunge of the holidays right now. It is
1: yeah we ju- and- it's time,
0: and we just realized that we have we actually submerged before we took a breath for, for this is- <laughs> so next week um, is the first of our, our annual uh, this two episodes, so back to back weeks, we'll be doing this mm-hmm. um, holiday recommendation show. So if you would like to get a customized holiday recommendation request from Rebecca and I, could be for you. Could be for someone you want to give as a you you're buying a gift for, you just want to know something. We are taking recommendation requests. Email us at podcast at bookriot.com. The first wave, you know, probably your best bet to get one in. We don't sometimes we don't get to all of them because we get a lot. Um would be to get them to us by Saturday, which would be November twenty fourth. Podcast mm-hmm. at BookRiot.com. We'll take a wave. And if we have Room for more, we'll let you know on that episode. Um, these are always fun episodes to do. I hope you like nonfiction. Um,
1: <laughs> Please tell me you need <laughs> books about yoga. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, right. Uh, no, but we'll, we'll drop, we'll, we'll uh, deploy all, of, all our skills and all our strengths, as uh, Corleone says in The Godfather, to do what we can to give you great we've recommendation read, requests.
1: Yeah. We've read some books. Yeah, we we're going to be fine. Yeah,
0: we we've we got plenty of books and we've read a bunch of books. So, podcast of get them in. We'll try to see what we can do. Always a fun show. Um, So there's that. Uh, Before we get into it, I have follow-up, but I think the follow-up will be more than regular follow-up. So let's do our first sponsor while we're here. It's Julian is a Mermaid, which, A, excellent title from Candlewick Press. So here's here's what it's about. It's a story of love and acceptance as it encourages kids and adults to embrace differences and have empathy for others. It defies gender stereotypes, ties in with the Coney Island Mermaid Parade, um, and got a five. St- it got five star reviews, including Kirk's five star reviews, calling it charmingly subversive. It's by Jessica Love, uh, and it's her debut. She's a Broadway actress with a studio art degree from UC Santa Cruz and a graduate degree from Juilliard. That's not too bad.
1: That's pretty fancy. She says,
0: this is what inspired Julian is a Mermaid. I used to date someone who had, been an, who had an older brother who was trans who came out to his family later in life. I remember there being questions about how to explain this transition to kids in the family. It made me curious about what sorts of books were out there for families who wanted to talk to their kids about gender and identity. I wanted to make a book that held the space for those conversations without being prescriptive about how they should go. I have, I have to confess, I picked up this book for my kids. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, kind of thing, I want them plugged into from an early age to make this, these kinds of identities and these kinds of stories something that won't feel foreign to them, won't feel exotic, won't feel something they're afraid of, something they won't be uncomfortable about, something they won't um, see as other in some kind of way. So that's Julian is a Mermaid. It's out now from Candlewick Press by Jessica Love. Go check that out. Highly recommend it. Go check it. Tell your library to go buy it if they don't have it so it's mm-hmm. available for other people. Yeah. That's, that's, that's another way we can use these ad spots. Go get your library this to buy. is
1: going it. on my list of things to buy for nieces and yeah. nephews for the holidays. Not, not sure. a lot
0: of books out there like this. Um, mm-hmm. So there you go. Listener feedback. We got follow up. So we got an email um, about W.H. Smith. We got some people telling us on Slack and on Twitter, you know, filling in the, the gaps. Uh, of our knowledge about W.H. Smith and the gap being sort of basically the Grand Canyon, if you can call the Grand Canyon a gap in our knowledge (laughs) um, about W.H. Smith. A lot of interesting things coming out about it. Uh, I guess I'll start here. So it it was, um, I guess it relates to something else you put in Slack too, maybe we'll talk about. But W.H. Smith was rated UK's worst high street shop by a group of readers from some magazine I've never heard of uh, that's in the UK. High Street, if you don't know, it is not where they sell marijuana in the UK. It's just like Main Street brick-and-mortar retailer. It's, it's, it's own, their own language. You know, They, they speak English okay over there. It's a couple of weird stuff that they do with our beautiful American language, but here we go. Um, mm-hmm. It has 10,000 <laughs> shoppers to rate their experience in buying non-grocery items at 100 major retailers for the past five uh, years, and there you go it came in last. So it's hard to say it's expensive. The stores are old. It's a down market situation. So there you go. I'm not sure what to do with that. It gives us some additional context on the other hand. Yeah. Oh, you, anything you want to say about this story, Rebecca? Oh,
1: well, yeah, I, well, this was a, a related yep. piece. One of our contributors, Ra, was telling us that they were listening to yep. the podcast and, you know, feeling very like, oh, you know, WH Smith is the worst. And then realized that they were having this thought on the way home from a trip to WH Smith. Mm. And and then they were like, well, that's about as indicative of the experience as you can right. get. <laughs> like necessities. I go there, but ugh.
0: Yeah, in, it, in that regard, it reminds me, again, it doesn't do the same thing, but the sort of headspace that a lot of Americans, consumers might hold for like the Walgreens of the world, the Dwayne Reeds mm, of the mm-hmm. world. Like you're not like super pumped to go to Walgreens and yet you find yourself going there because you right. just, it's available, you need it, you need it. Yeah. They, they're around. Um, there you go. Uh, the related piece of follow-up though, which I kind of found more interesting was that apparently W.H. Smith is opening some book shop, uh, stores that are dedicated to books. So as we talked oh, about last time, um, I'll put these in the show notes. It's no slideshow. This is from Christopher uh, who emailed us, but there's some links. called They're called The Bookshop by W.H. Smith, um, and they look like they're small bookstores, really look smaller than your average indie or maybe on the... If you think of it as like a small indie, a little more corporate looking, but, you know, wooden bookshelves and they're pretty much packed. Um, But they only sell books and they seem to be designed to be a lot closer in feel to Waterstones and seem to be doing pretty well. So in our, I guess, in our alternate universe where um, we didn't get sort of a, a boardroom showdown, you know, pissing match over at BNN and this WH Smith acquisition actually went through you might imagine that Barnes & Noble's became the mm-hmm. bookshop yeah which
1: yeah that's interesting there
0: you go so there we know a little bit more about what didn't yeah. almost happen i guess <laughs>
1: Should we talk more about this Barnes and Noble desperation? Yes. You
0: you you moment. you texted to me this other day, then put it in Slack. Um <laughs> what, what did you discover out there in the wild? So I
1: you know, I went to Barnes and Noble on Tuesday to pick up Michelle Obama's new book and um There's a giant banner in the front window of my Barnes & Noble. I think it's in most, if not all of them now, from what I've heard on Slack with our insiders, that says number one most reputable retailer in America, according to the Reputation Institute's 2018 U.S. retail rep track rankings. Barnes & Noble is listed number one, but then they list two through five.
0: An odd move. An odd move.
1: It is an odd move. Like, you know why would you, why do you remind people of <laughs> well, your competitors? Well, and tell them why,
0: why it's weird because who's number two? Because
1: number two is Amazon. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> and then the rest of the list is interesting. Like, you know, it would be, I think this is one thing if it's like most reputable, you know, bookshop uh-huh. in America or whatever, but Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Cabela's, Autozone and Costco. Mm. And like that's that's just a I mean, this is a very American assortment of retailers, um, for in terms of big, big box kinds of things. But I think when I texted it to you, it was like me thinks Barnes and Noble both protests too much. Like, how bad are things when you're like, you know, the way we're gonna get business is put banners in the windows about how reputable we are. It's it feels to me like going to dinner with the guy who's like, I'm a really good guy.
0: Yeah. You know I'm big in Japan. I, it's interesting. I mean, I guess it would make sense to publicize that. If Barnes and Noble coming up the number one list of anything that's not physical book retailer <laughs> is good news. I mean, yeah, I'm not. That's. Sure. I don't mean that snarkily. Like you need to use it, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't get y'all hot and bothered to go to Barnes. Boy, are they reputable. Man, I'm going to go do some reputable shopping over at uh, Big Green (laughs) B&N today.
1: Well, and also, like, it's in the front windows. I haven't seen this anywhere else. And so, like, by the time you see it, you've already decided you're going to Barnes & Noble. (laughs) So it's like, congratulations, you're walking into the most reputable place that you had already decided you trusted enough to come here. So I was thinking about, like, you know, you could, I think you're right, you want to lasso getting this kind of title, um, but... This is maybe what you put in, I don't know, like targeted Facebook or Google ads for people that are looking for books online or that, you know, are shopping for retargeting is fancy. They could figure this Mm -hmm. out of like, let's. Try to convert some people, like maybe you try to convert some Amazon book buyers to Barnes and Noble because Barnes and Noble is more reputable yeah. like, it's the holidays it's this is time to try to get people in the door that aren't typically in the doors of your store, but the like let us announce it to you who have already chosen to come here seemed a little like that's a little preaching to the choir, unnecessary like I, you know, they just didn't quite get it, no. which is how I feel about a lot of Barnes and Noble's efforts. It's also like the days. least
0: sexy, good thing you can say about a retail <laughs> right. chain, right? Like, I mean, it's like <laughs> you know, the it most right, hygienic, like, the cleanest toilets, but they're like the most it, reputable. Right, it's
1: like, it is. It's like to go back to the date analogy. Yeah. It's like, well, tell me about yourself. Like, well, I'm very punctual. <laughs> right. That's right. You know, like oh, baby. Yeah,
0: my my sock drawer is very tidy.
1: <laughs> I'm a recondoed the shit yeah. out of that. <laughs> it's
0: it's funny too because then you know Amazon's number two. So there's a little bit of a are you leading? You're kind of leading with your job because you want to distinguish yourself. I think if you're Barnes and Noble, it's Amazon's got to be your number one competitor, and they're right there next to. you. Just leave it off the sign. Don't put it on there. D- don't do right, it. Just
1: why not? Just a big banner yeah. that says number one most reputable retailer.
0: I think. It does make me wonder a little bit too about the, this. Is also along the wrong vector that they're losing customers to. It's like no one's departing mm-hmm. Barnes Noble because like you know they're so disreputable, or the competitors are. Buying. I'm so worried <laughs> about rep, you know Amazon's <laughs> reputability or reputability. That's your ability to turn is into. A, a I think it's your ability to turn into a reptile. Um, Let's go with it. But like, it made me think: what national chains that would appear on this list? would I consider disreputable.
1: Oh, like, I don't like, even think of
0: reputation f- in a national chain as even a question, right? Like, if they're a national what chain, I kind f- of implicitly... You know, they're gonna not going to scam you. It's a giant corporation like, to just buy it from the store. I don't think of the it.
1: The criteria of reputability. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> weird. Are, hmm.
0: Um, like, I guess maybe... In the old days, Comp USA kind of got a bad reputation for trying to upsell you and having bad customer service in stores like mm-hmm. that. Maybe like a wa- mm-hmm. maybe it's like the Walgreens and Duane Reade. Like we just talked about, W. H. Smith, they were like ranked the worst. It'd be something that's very down market um, in a lot of different. You know, it's it's very utilitarian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe like gas stations. I don't know, right? I, or
1: like yeah, like you can't get any good customer service, right? Um, you
0: don't even want to be there. Yeah. You, you don't want to right. be there. Um, right. And I do wonder how much of the halo effects that Barnes & Noble happens to sell books and people have like a sort of books conservative must be conservative romanticism about books. So how bad can it be? I, You know, right. how much credit can they really take for that people like books books and we i don't know it's an odd thing and it does connect a little bit to the wh smith story um in terms of relative reputations i guess the halo mm-hmm. effect of books can't be that great if wh smith and a lot of their story sells half books and they came in dead last um interesting to think about but it is yeah. it's a little bit grasping of straws um it's like we're the best company with an ampersand in our name number one <laughs> came out number one actually Crate, and B- also- Crate and barrel might beat them sadly
1: yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Ben and
0: go. Jerry's yes. um Room and Board. We're the top five. <laughs> top five uh, retail brands with in our name.
1: Oh boy. Didn't take us long no. to Crap! To
0: crap, crap all over sales.
1: that one. Today there yeah. we go. You know I wish that I had had a little more research time, or not had, but devoted a little more research time before the show here to figure out what this Reputation Institute Mm. is. Like, is this even a thing that matters? (laughs) Or were they just like, you know what, Barnes & Noble, like, people have told us that they like you, and so will you put a banner up in your store, like um bob as you know is a financial advisor and local it happens in richmond i'm sure it happens in all cities like local magazines run the or like some local company runs some consumer driven thing of like who are the best financial advisors Mm -hmm. or like who are the best pediatricians or whatever and it's a huge scam because all that they do then is they call him once a year and are like you've been voted one of richmond's best financial advisors um you know, do you want the full-page ad in Richmond Magazine? Do you want the full-page ad and the plaque? Or would you like it on a gold trophy? Like, they start with the assumption that you're going to spend, you know, a ridiculous amount yeah. of money to advertise that you've won a thing that's meaningless. Um, right. And I wonder how much of that is going on here.
0: I think too. there's a non-zero chance that there's some sort of <laughs> pay-to-play element. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there you go. So, anyway... <laughs> this has been Retail Corner. Um, let's transition out of that a little bit. Sad news. I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this, it was all over the place, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, Stan Lee, the great comic creator, um, Marvel, legend, uh, Marvel legend, Marvel Comics co-founder. I think that's right. I, I was looking at my bio, and it's a little murky. I even read a whole book about the Marvel comics. It's still a little murky. And I think it's, a on the whole, a, a very positive legacy. In the early days of Marvel, there was some stuff about... How he got involved with comics and maybe taking credit for things he didn't do or signing deals that were advantageous to him, and not say like famously Jack Kirby who created the Fantastic Four, but over time was, you know, it's 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 one of those things where in hindsight I think in twenty years we're like I was alive at the same time of Stan Lee. It's like Walt Disney or someone like that. It's that mm, that mm-hmm. kind of influence, almost hard to. Um, how hard to get a come with. Virtually every Marvel superhero you've heard of, Stan Lee has his fingers in. I think artistic, there's a commercial and there's an artistic piece to this. The art, the commercial piece is more complicated. The artistic piece is, you know, in a nutshell, he brought human traits to superheroes. They were complicated. Mm-hmm. They had struggles. They dealt with depression. They dealt with addiction, they dealt with prejudice, they dealt with bias of all kinds, they dealt with interpersonal um, difficulty. And, you know, the easiest way to see it is to look at old Superman comics and old Batman comics and see how these were superheroes, not just in terms of what they could do, but how they were as beings in the world. Uh, They were much more mythic in terms of not really having interiorities and not really having personalities, not really being relatable on a human level. But then you started to get things like, you know, Ben Grimm in the Fantastic Four, who gets changed into this rock monster hero with enormous strength and powers, but also he looks like a giant rock, and it doesn't go so well all the time if you look like a giant (laughs) rock. You look at the X-Men, who are mutants, and they have these amazing powers, but they're labeled as different and are persecuted and really gets in Peter Parker, Spider-Man, who is a, you know, maybe the most interesting or one of the most powerful superheroes in the world, but also a teenager going through what it means to be a teenager and having a secret identity. Like a lot, a lot of the metaphorical stuff is a little on the nose if you're like in a graduate seminar, but it did, it did offer superhero stories complexity and ongoing interest beyond just look how hard we can punch um this thing or look at the powers it's the stories themselves became interesting and you know the marvel method that stanley introduced it was it's it's really interesting in terms of productivity and creativity but the artists and writers i know this sounds insane didn't used to work side by side you know the basically my understanding is at least uh, email me if i'm mm-hmm. wrong is that the writers would go give the the scripts to the artists and that would sort of be it but he moved the artists and writers closer together physically in the studios so they could work together on stories and have visions for art and other things like that. So the the modern idea of a comic book hero, and you see it in all the Marvel movies, like, you know, starting with the modern era of Marvel in 2008's Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr.'s um, Tony Stark is a complicated figure. He's not just a hero. He starts out sort of as a weapons dealer, he's a womanizer, he's an alcoholic, and a lot of that stuff haunts him going forward. Though he tries to be better, he still carries that baggage with him into the future and sustains stories over time because the characters, I think that's a thing that Stanley ultimately either realized, figured out or stumbled into, that the characters themselves have to be interesting beyond their powers in addition to their powers. And it's very difficult not to see that the modern world of popular entertainment isn't kind of Stanley's grandchild to some degree. There's other grand—you know, every, every child has multiple grandparents, but I think Stanley's a big one of them. So there's my, you know, brief memorial, a tribute, uh, nutshell, obituary to Stan Lee, 95 years old. Um, incredible, incredible legacy, and one that I think only in time will we be able to get our heads around uh, at all.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I don't have much familiarity with Stan Lee, only, you know, passing familiarity with comics and most of my familiarity with Marvel characters is from the movies mm-hmm. and from, you know, I can spot Stan Lee doing his cameo in any yes. of the movies. Um, but I think you're right that the scope of his influence already seems huge. Um, the, like all kinds of people in my social feeds yeah. were talking about the impact of his work on their lives and some of them were people that i was pretty surprised mm-hmm. to see sharing that which i thought was really cool but i do think it's one of those um that we won't know for you know 20 or 30 or 50 years like really um what the 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 threads out of this influence yeah. were and and how big the influence is um a really incredible like
0: incredible legacy um and and again what it's complicated there's there's um i'll put a link in the show notes to the the story of marvel that i read and i think If you're interested in, you know, the history of 20th century pop culture and comics and Stan Lee, it's really worth reading. Really well done. And, you know, warts and all, you know, he's a human. Mm
1: Yeah, of course. So there's that.
0: Uh, Let's do good news. Um, Uh, Can we ring a BR bell for a minute?
1: Oh, yeah, we're going to ring the BR bell. We don't get to like toot the we don't toot our no. own horns all that often I don't think, but we want to throw some confetti and wave some muppet arms and just be thrilled for our colleague Kelly Jensen, one of the editors of Book Riot. and um, also Uh, edits anthology collections wonderful timely anthology collections uh, with algonquin and had a collection out just a few months ago called don't call me crazy 33 voices start the conversation about mental health Uh, it's intended for young adult readers and older ages 14 and up and it was named just this week as one of the washington post's 10 best children's books of 2018
0: hey hey
1: hey hey Kelly there are so many fascinating writers in among these mm. 33 voices um, from just a really diverse breadth of experience of identity um, of background and of the different kinds of mental health um, struggles that they've dealt with. And it's so um, I think all the voices are just very honest. Um, It's very refreshing to hear people speak so openly about something that continues to be stigmatized in our society and that we need, we just always need more conversation about mental health and about uh, that this is, a, this is part of being human. And if you don't experience it yourself, you'll, your life will certainly be touched by it in some way uh, with someone that you know. And so being able to talk about the, these varieties of experience and take the shame out of them um, and restructure the conversation is just so vital. Um, it's a wonderful book. And I'm, I know I and you couldn't be prouder mm-hmm. of Kelly or happier to see this happen. And so um, I think also just we'll just preemptively put this on the list for the holiday recommendation request that if there is anyone in your life, and I'm sure there is, um, that could benefit from a reframing or just hearing that they're not alone Mm. um, in experiencing these things. Don't Call Me Crazy, edited by Kelly Jensen. Congrats, Kelly.
0: Congrats, Kelly. Well-deserved. Let's go on to more award winners. Um, This, I think, will bring to an end... um, the Jeff and Rebecca Shruggy Parade around 2018 <laughs> awards. Um, 2018 Shruggy Parade's a good
1: show title. Uh, I was just like writing it down uh, as you said. Um,
0: <laughs> the National Book Awards were announced last night. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of notable things to say here. You know, I think the, the best picture version, you know, the, the one that gets the most attention, mm-hmm. most um, people are paying attention to is the winner for best novel. Just, there's best for fiction. Mm-hmm. No YA, you know, yeah. anything else like that. A Secret okay. Nunez, one for the friend, which I had not read the blurb. Did you read the blurb about this this morning? No. Mm-mm. I'm going to read it right now. And then Tell you me. react what I said. Um, <laughs> when a woman unexpectedly loses her lifelong best friend and mentor, she finds herself burdened with an unwanted dog he has left behind. Her own battle against grief is intensified by the mute suffering of the dog, a huge Great Dane traumatized by the inexplicable disappearance of its master and by the threat of eviction. Dogs are prohibited in her apartment building. While others worry that grief has made her a victim of magical thinking, the woman refuses to be separated from the the dog except for the brief periods of time. Isolated from the rest of the world, increasingly obsessed with the dog's care, determined to read its mind and fathom its heart, she comes dangerously close to unraveling. But while troubles around, abound, rich and surprising rewards lie in store for both of them. That's pretty interesting.
1: That does sound interesting.
0: We've got one question, though. You know what the question is here? N- no. Does the dog die?
1: Oh, let us know. Yeah,
0: if anyone knows, um, we won't... I guess we don't want to announce on the show because it's a spoiler, but maybe you could you could email us and ask.
1: For my own knowledge i would like to well you're not the only one like
0: (laughs) the trigger warnings people get are of course sexual assault stuff happening to kids and does the dog die or the pet Mm -hmm. die like that makes sense to me um
1: yeah and i it won't keep me from reading the book i would just like to know yeah
0: it's one of the it's a content warning that's not a trigger warning right that you want to have some control over what kinds of stories you Mm -hmm. consume
1: How sad am I going to be today? Is yeah, right. Like to... You know, is
0: this a two alarm snot bomb, a five alarm <laughs> snot? Like, where, where, you know, what defcon are we on? What mucus bomb are we really talking about here? <laughs> um, so that that's the Head and Shoulders one. The other, the other winners. Um, I'm so glad to see um, Jeffrey mm-hmm. C. Stewart win for nonfiction for The mm-hmm. New Negro: The Life of Elaine Locke. Um, in poetry, Justin Philip uh, Reed wins for indecency. Um, in the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, translated literature category, uh, Margaret Mitsutani, uh, wins for the translation word for her translation of The Emissary by Yoko Tawada, uh, translated from the Japanese. And then, um, I think this is probably the one we might've put our chips on if we were betting people for young adult. Um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Acevedo wins for The Poet X. Um, and because we count and we pay attention, all mm-hmm. people of color. Yes. I'm sure that's not the, a mistake. Is that,
1: the, I'm not, is that the first time that's happened in National Book Award history? I haven't. I would counted. frankly be surprised if it has but, happened before. But yeah, um, same.
0: But this, you know, Lisa Lucas, who is the executive director over there, I think she has systemically put in place the ability for this to happen, um, or at the very least, the, the ability that people that people are getting nominated based on. Um, well, not they're not getting left out for structural reasons. Let's put it that way. Um, amazing award. Very exciting. Anything else you want to say about this? Again, no, we don't know anything. It's the shruggy. Yeah.
1: it's the shruggy parade, and we're not reading fiction this year.
0: <laughs> and I never read poetry, <laughs> and I very rarely re- read YA. Um, yeah, so there I we will go. probably
1: you know I perpetually pick up the National Book Award poetry winners with very good intentions, mm-hmm. and then uh, very rarely actually get through <laughs> all of them for read. It's definitely me. It's not them. Um, but I'm probably gonna pick up indecency, and I've had the poet X. Um, YA has been. Uh, oh, hmm, an exception to the can't really read fiction yeah. this year rule, so I'm probably going to give that one a shot.
0: I think, too, um, I'm going to be paying attention. I knew at the time that I was excited about the Translated Award. Um, this is the first year it's been given. But reading the blurb for The Emissary is also fascinating. We'll put a link in the show so notes. I won't read the blurb here, but it's sort of a a, a post-disaster Japan uh, speculative fiction. Not quite a dystopia. I, without having read it, I don't know if I'd be... I'd be um, wrong or right in labeling it as dystopia mm. but it sounds super interesting a fable like speculative fiction about a post disaster japan sounds really interesting as well yeah it, you know i think for me as someone who likes fiction likes for lack of a better term literary fiction right god help us mm-hmm. all um <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking for gatekeeping the world for, or not gatekeeping, but like put a put a sticker on some of these for me to pick out when I'm looking for literature from around the world. And this is a good one. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let's do a sponsor. You want to tell me about a sponsor? All right.
1: Yes. Our next sponsor this week is In Half by Yasmin Freelick. This is millennials, but at 50 in a world they did not want. Mm. Uh, The characters here, right, are close friends from their youth, a poet, a theater director, and an ex-minister of war, each on their own continent, each in a different political setting, and now they are grappling with the uncertain realities of a disconnected world. 25 years in the future, a glitch in the global communications network is ripping a previously united world apart at the seams. The millennials find themselves hardest hit, trapped in a crumbling world they did not want, and as they each prepare to celebrate their 50th birthdays, the friends desperately try to recapture the magic of their former lives and hold on to some sort of sense of belonging. This is a it's very timely it's a satirical look at society today and imagining where we'll be 25 years from now about the importance of technology and our reliance on technology and it opens up questions about global communication and about the future of our society Um, so if that sounds interesting to you it certainly sounds interesting to me it's in half if you're searching for it online it's in slash half by yasmin Freelick. and we'll have a link in the show notes
0: I don't remember that we did this this last year the publish P, publishers we weekly did. publishing industry salary yeah. did we do it last we year? We do it
1: every year, yeah. And mm-hmm.
0: maybe it's just that the story stays <laughs> the same. Um, that's, that's exactly that what I it don't is. don't know. Um Publishers Weekly released um yeah, last week. It's mm-hmm. uh annual industry salary survey for the publishing industry that isn't just salaries, it's demographics of people that work and where they work. Um not so, you know, even though it's called the Salary Survey, the infographic that PW leads with kind of is the story in a lot of ways. Um, no, nah, that's not not exactly true. It's inter- I think it's interesting. That's the one they led with, even though it's a salary survey and this first infographic has nothing to do with salaries. It's racial makeup of publishing. Long story short, um, you know, it's like um, modern kitchens. They're mostly white. Um, mm-hmm. White Caucasian, 86%. <laughs> Asian, 4%, Hispanic, 4%, mixed race, 3%, black, African-American, 2%, and other 1%. Um, I, I think it's helpful to remember, some people, sometimes people see this, and they know, rightly, that, you know, America's mm-hmm. mostly white, so shouldn't this be mostly white? Well, America's about 63% white. Okay. And so this is mm-hmm. f- 33% more white than the nation as a whole. And the one that sticks out the most to me, because I happen to have this stat in front of mine, is the black African-American is 2%, which is like six times less than it would be if this were, you know, um, indexed to the American Mm. population at large. And it just hasn't, it just hasn't moved, man. Like, it's down a percentage point from 2016. For Mm -hmm. all the talk, and we have talked a lot about, you know, we just talked about the National Book Award. We see Mm -hmm. improvement on the lists, the catalogs, I think. We haven't seen a big survey of catalogs, but like the lists and these, I feel like we've, the We Need Diverse movement has made inroads. We Need Diverse books movement, pardon me, me. but the people with their butts in chairs in New York, those people haven't changed, it doesn't seem like.
1: They they haven't. Yeah, that it's only the publishing is only one percent whiter than one percent white, one percent less white than it was last year is it just really hasn't moved. Um, and there's a really telling paragraph in the middle of this piece that says diversifying the workforce seems to be more important to people of color than it is to white industry members, though. Fifty three percent of non-white respondents said that strides have been made yeah. in diversifying publishing's ranks. Um Let's see. um, Only thirty-eight percent said no progress has been made, and only nine percent said they don't know whether things have improved. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are so few non-white people in the industry that if that, in order to diversify the workforce, this has to change. Like Mm -hmm. this is the thing that has to change: is non-white or sorry, white people have to decide that they care enough about diversifying the workforce to do something Mm. about it. And some of that means, you know, actively changing the pipeline, actively promoting hiring and promoting people of color, paying attention to these kinds of things. And some of it might mean then doing so with the recognition that you may ultimately give up an opportunity for yourself Mm -hmm. um, because you're, you know, trying to put different people in the seats at the table. And like, I think publishing is still, I mean, you can see here by age and gender breakdowns, like publishing is very white. Mm -hmm. Publishing is relatively like, it's not the youngest um, of industries. And, if this is going to move at all, like it, this movement can't just occur at the bottom. No. You know, it can't just occur with the young non-white people who are doing the vast majority of the work to raise these issues and to make them public and to rally for change. Um, but for the change to actually happen, policy has to be made around it and new systems have to be put in place. And that can only come from the top and the vast majority of the people at the top are white. Mm. Um, so they have to decide that they care. And I, I, I guess the only positive thing about this is that Publi- PW Publishers Weekly is hanging a real lantern on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> You know, this, this sentence, like the opening sentence of the piece is change comes slowly to the publishing industry, despite years of the discussion about the need to bring more people of color into the workforce. It's only down the whiteness is only down one percentage from 2016. And then noting that you know, diversifying it seems to matter a whole lot more to the people who aren't white than it does to people who are white. So this is a real, you know, put your money and your policy and your time where your mouth is moment, but it's very disappointing, not surprising, very disappointing. And
0: the the respondents seem to echo the sense you and I have that on the title level, things have improved. I I don't think we're at the promised land yet, but this is a quote directly from the piece. In terms of improving the diversity of titles, 78% of all respondents said improvement has been made, uh, 79% of white respondents said improvements have been made, and 73% of people of color said improvement has been made on the title level. So that's, I guess that maybe is a, a bright of good, a spot of good news there. Um, but a much higher prosor- proportion of non-white respondents, 20%, than white respondents, 6%, said they feel no improvement in title diversity has been made. The story's a little bit more mixed. Maybe you can see the tide turning to some degree um when it comes to gender and pay and management. Still mm-hmm. a significant, I don't want to undersell. A still a significant pay gap. Um the median the average salary for men who responded to the survey was $87,000 compared to $60,000 for women. So that's still a $27,000 disparity. That's improved $1,000 from last year as we said the, high, the the higher ups it's going to have to get people in the higher up positions and that seems to be happening women closed the pay gap in the management ranks by $3,000 and according mm-hmm. to the survey 59% of management jobs were held by women in 2017 up from 49% in 2016 so we went from women being less than half to more mm-hmm. than half by you know almost uh, 6 in 10 Management jobs are held by women, at least I should say that with the caveat that this is um, people who responded. So. Hmm. so there's change being made there. I would guess, if our theory of this is sort of right, that as women hold more and more management positions, the pay gap for women all up and down the line in publishing will start to um, narrow as well.
1: Well, here's hoping. But,
0: you know, this is one thing that people who talk about intersectional fe- feminism tend to note is that things get better for white women while things for people of color and women of color don't. And that's not progress, really. That's not the whole story. And sometimes white women, and forget about white men for a second, we're just a disaster. But for the moment, let's talk about white women for a second, about sometimes the pulling yourself up and pulling each other up doesn't include women of color, doesn't include people of color. And that's something that seems to be happening a little bit in publishing Mm -hmm. here.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. You know, that, um, well, I think we're seeing a couple big things here. And one is that certainly Im- there are improvements and changes in gender balance, gender equity, um, in a way that is not happening with racial equity mm-hmm. in publishing. Um, women are getting more opportunities, people of color are not. Getting any more measurable opportunities by by measure of the size and makeup of the workforce, and those two things don't always happen at the same times in society, but they do impact each other. And um, I think that that is the top line that this is a thing that a thing that does happen is like the feminist movement occurs, white women get a bunch of new rights. Um, it's still it continues to be really difficult to be a woman of color. You're doubly margin, marginalized as a woman and as a person of color. In this country and that if white women don't do the rest of the work and like true feminism, I believe is intersectional um, and wants equality for all women um, that when we're talking about like, well, now, if you're in a place of power in publishing and you're white, you have to start caring or, you know, if you say you care, Mm -hmm. you have to start acting on that care um, to create opportunities for people of color, especially for women, and that the halls of power in publishing are starting to be occupied um, by more women in management positions means it's on these women Mm. who are largely white to do this work um, and to, you know, not require that the marginalized people in the lower rungs of the industry have to fight their way Mm. up. Um, That change can occur that way, but that's not the way that change should occur. And if you have benefited from you know, institutional changes and from activism in some way. And you're a white woman now who has a position of power and some access. It is on you Mm -hmm. to continue the work. Um, You don't get to stop caring just because you got the new rights.
0: And I don't want to gloss over that, you know, white men still have the most ability to change the dynamics here. That's still, you know, Mm -hmm. the most clout still lays there. Um, And we've got work to do. And especially if you care about doing this at all, you know, the eyes, the scales are still on a lot of our eyes here. I think by highlighting that white women seem to be benefiting from a sea change, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of these women are probably well-intentioned. A lot of the people, I, I would guess, I'm just saying the, the intentions are good. I think what's hard to understand, it's still hard for me to understand, is that even as you are advocating for gender equity, you can still fall prey to the same kinds of systemic and cultural racism that white men are so fluent and let's put it that way, just because you're fighting for gender equality doesn't mean you don't have the same biases that led to um white men having those kinds of racial biases yeah. that that it takes double they don't necessarily they're not they're not causally linked they don't go hand in hand right. in a way that you think they might they just don't yeah um yeah. And it takes and extra attention I
1: think right, and you're right to point out that their intentions are probably good mm-hmm. or at least not intent. They don't have intentions for ill, but I think that it's like when Obama got elected and people were like, well, there's a black man in the white house, so we must be in a post-racial right, yeah, society. Uh-huh. You know, Look if you that can point out. to turned like, great. right, right. Um, that if you can point to, well, that we have, you know, more women in management positions, or if you are a woman who like you've gotten some promotions and maybe all your bosses are women and you're a white woman looking around, seeing, Women who look like you in positions of power th- through structural and institutional forces, you might think like, oh, well, okay, so we're done. You know, like mm-hmm. we're done with sexism. This is fine. When really the women of color around you are still being affected by sexism and by racism. Yeah, um, it's tough. That aren't the, yeah, that aren't the, you. they're not the like... Overt, vocal—you can't have this job because you're a black woman. Mm-hmm. It's much more subtle and insidious than that, which makes it harder to root out and harder to change. And I just know and believe that that comes from the top. Um, so I don't know, Jeff. Maybe next year. <sighs> well, I think this story that, that women
0: in management—I mean, maybe that's the first. I mean, maybe that's the first domino that has to fall in deconstructing some of these things. Like maybe, maybe it's too much to ask, or it's unreasonable to ask, for it's an order of operations thing where. You know, chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at the inequity um, in the seats at the table and the pay. Well, I don't know, but like, I don't think it's ne- I think that kind of thinking leads to people think, well, the first domino fell, so the other ones are going to think. I think it's possible right. in this situation you hit the first domino mm-hmm. and it, that's white exactly. women and it hits the next one and just stays there. It just falls. It right. Just like, sits you, can,
1: there. there's, you can only promote who you already have. That's right. In the room, yeah. and so I think that's at work here. That there were a lot oh, of that's white a great women point. in publishing, you know, and and those white women are getting promotions. But if this is going to change, it has to be that there are more people of color in the room. Yeah. Publishers have to be hiring more people of color so that the next dominoes can fall, so that then they can promote more people of color and really. Do and and really do this. Um, Mm -hmm. that perhaps those second dominoes, you know, all the secondary dominoes haven't fallen because there aren't enough people in the room for them to fall. Um, like there's not critical, and that's a real problem that the industry very likely doesn't have enough people of color in it to, you know, to accurately and fully represent people Mm -hmm. of color up and down the ladders of power in, in these businesses. So, yeah I mean well, it could
0: lot. be that you know one percent for ten years is ten percent and then you're at seventy six percent and it's looking again i it's also hard to know that sometimes politics and cultural change is the you know the nail the the screwing of hard nails into hard wood and it takes time and effort and it doesn't happen overnight in a way that we might want to so i I think watching the vector of change is important like that this switch in women in management i think is I don't want to undersell that. 49 to 56, like there's a worm turning moment there. Like that's a pretty big change Mm -hmm. for one year. Now, if you just got promoted to management, are you more interested in fulfilling out a survey about your job? That's a second, you know, that's another question. There's a lot of methodology corners, things we could do here. Lastly, I don't know if we want to spend too much time on this because I don't know that's that different than culture at large about sexual harassment. Mm. Um, 18% of respondents said that they had been sexually harassed in the context of their job. Um, you know, I I don't know what the writ large number is. I don't know of what I would have guessed if I was asked to guess what number. Oh, that feels right to me. Weirdly. I'd be curious to hear what you had to say about that number.
1: Well, I mean, I think the answer to this question for, I think that this number comes out of the fact that both men and women are. That's right. There you go. And that that if you ask women and non-binary folks, mm-hmm. basically, if you ask people who aren't cis het guys, yeah. um, have you been sexually harassed, period, the answer is almost 100% mm-hmm. in some context. Um, have you been sexually harassed in the context of your job? I would put it over 50% mm. um, for women, um, It depends on how people, of course, define sexual harassment um, for themselves or what they think their company's policies are. But I think that um, asking this question and lumping um, Mm. men and women's responses together obscures the truth Mm. of the size of the issue. And this is not like that's not specific to publishing, but it's like if if the Harvey Weinstein news had broken and a newspaper had done a piece about this and had been like, well, we asked 10,000 people um, if they've been sexually harassed and here are the answers. That's not indicative of the problem. (laughs) Um, Sexual harassment is largely pointed at women. Uh, And so to say, well, only 18%. Like, I don't believe this number, (laughs)
0: basically. Well, the number is is probably accurate of what the... I mean, I don't think they're misrepresenting the mm-hmm. data they got but the way it's structured oh, right, and right, right. It, yes it, yeah is, i think this is
1: a bad question yeah. like to put it into methodology corner this is a bad question mm-hmm. or you should break out the yes and no responses by the gender and frankly also the race of the people answering the question
0: i think the most interesting part of this whole thing i mean i guess the part that got my ears perked up was they included a section of they had basically an open blank spot in the survey for people to give comments on sexual harassment, and they included mm. i don 't know if these are representative they don 't really understand um, they, oh, they say this, we selected some of the comments we received i so if mm. they 're indicative or not they 're actual respondents about sexual harassment and I would encourage you if you 're interested in this to follow the link in this journal you scroll to the bottom and you could see and I think the the tenor of these comments is best encapsulated by this following one um, Sexual harassment is rife within the industry, but even more rife at my company is sexual discrimination unrelated to actual sexual acts. Simply mm. being a male makes you less likely to get promoted at middle management levels and has been acknowledged as social economic justice, um, has been acknowledged as social economic justice by my HR department in the past. A weird comment, right? I think it's an, there's, a, there's a bifurcated thinking going on there mm-hmm. that I think... Is indicative of a moment of a transition. I think that's fair, but also really telling that like sexual harassment is right, but dudes are discriminated against. Like that's clearly a situation. Well, and then you look at the rest of the comments and they're all, this is still a big problem. It doesn't get reported mm-hmm. and things don't happen. And yet there's resistance still to take the whole situation well, seriously. I just find it fascinating. Of
1: course. Of course there is. You know, like, I guess That, so. you know... Men who have had access to all of the opportunities in the past, um, perceive other people getting access to those opportunities as a loss to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, not all hashtag, not all men, you know, don't send me your emails about how you're a good guy, yada, 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 whatever. Right. Um, but like that a company actively promotes women or focuses on creating opportunities for people who aren't just men mm-hmm. um like that is a form of social and economic justice and i don't think that's a bad thing um but like reverse sexism doesn't exist reverse racism does like these are not things um and that this comment is essentially my company is reverse sexist because yes, right. I'm a because because I'm a dude and um, women are getting middle management spots that I think I should have that I think I should have gotten priority for and I don't get priority anymore. Boring. It's really you're losing priority. You know he could still get promoted, um, but he doesn't have the same assumed priority that he previously had just by virtue of maleness and then you're right the rest of the comments is just a string Mm -hmm. of you know despite all the open-faced policies large publishing houses seem to tout there are cover-ups and complaints going unheeded managers spreading stories about employees who have told them vulnerable information in strict confidence a lack of allies in upper management um you know Responses to specific instances over the past year, but I don't believe the industry is actually invested in changing the climate. Mm. I think this one's a very telling comment it's quote when it comes down to it it will be a cost benefit analysis and if a house or agency or other arm can get by without significantly hurting their bottom line incidents are going to get swept under the carpet again um when the when the harasser is high profile public statements are made and noticed by everyone and we agree we're doing a good job when it's someone lower profile or internal most of the time it seems like there really isn't any punishment at all here's one that i I know to be true from stories that I have heard from folks is if an author's book is selling well, management turns a blind eye to any complaints of sexual harassment. The same is true if the individual in management is well liked and the complaints are always brushed off or laughed off. And we know of folks in really high, powerful positions at publishers with like a good half dozen at least stories that I could rattle off about them. It just doesn't seem like anything is ever going to happen. And that's either like maybe settlements and non-disclosure agreements have occurred. Mm. Um, Maybe the publisher just doesn't care. But there are some that are high profile enough that I have to believe that the people at the top are aware and are choosing not to do anything about it.
0: There is a part of it that feels like... the old, I think this used to happen more in car companies than it does now. But if they'd find a flaw in the safety of the brakes of the, you know an old car, and I'm not going to name a brand name because mm-hmm. I really don't want to get sued into oblivion, but <laughs> you know they they're, they figure it out like okay, a recall is going to cost us X amount of dollars, and just paying settlements for the people that get hurt in these crashes is going to cost us less. So we'll just go with that, right? They're mm-hmm. they're, they're solving for the bottom line rather than. Some other vector that we might hope they would they would solve for, and that seems to be happening here. I think the ex, the you know the the expression of frustration is interesting. It's useful. It's probably a precondition of change happening. Um, mm-hmm. But as as you know, we said before, we'd like to see this happening. I think one thing that comes through with this, and I feel like it's to be true to writ large, is that existing corporate policy is not equipped to handle this world of sexual harassment. Yeah. It's it's just it's just corporate HR policy doesn't anticipate things like this where there may not be smoking guns. They don't have clauses built into it. There's not like malfeasance clauses around sexual harassment. You know, It's just it's sort of beyond the scope of what companies themselves are equipped to deal with. They don't have the tools to deal with it, so like reporting it to their tools doesn't help because they don't know what right. to do with it. It's like you give me really nice and ingredients to cook with. I still can't make something good because I don't know how to cook. I just don't. I don't know what to do with want, it. And they
1: don't want like... I think that one part of this too is that publishing, and I think it's part like emblematic of publishing being slow to change at all, is that publishers don't want the PR disaster of yeah. you know executive or head of imprint or whatever gets fired right. for sexual harassment, and that means that they don't understand yet that a headline like that is to their benefit.
0: Ultimately, I think it you would know? be yeah. Ultimately, I, know, think it I, would be. I think
1: so too. Like in, in the, the moment of this movement that we're in right now a giant company firing someone in a position of power over sexual misconduct is a point in that company's favor. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a PR disaster. This is a good PR moment for you. If there is someone you should be firing for this, you should fire them and you should tell everyone that you have done it. It establishes trust among the people who work for you and it establishes trust among your consumers and among people who might come work for you. And it's just the right thing to do. But Publishers also have the trickiness of they're not just dealing with the folks who work inside the publishing house. They have all these external factors with authors as well of what do you do about that? And one of the remarks here is that companies need policies to deal with authors Mm -hmm. who harass their Well, the morality clause we talked about previously,
0: right? Like how can you do something about that? Yeah,
1: and that these should be built into contracts. Like if you're a publicist and you have to accompany an author to a bunch of appearances and that author harasses you, but... He's in a, you know, he's one of your company's big deals. Mm. What are you supposed to do? Like, are they're probably not going to cancel his contract? So you can either keep doing your job or you can get taken off that account.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaks. I mean, just to to use a real life example, think of how the story about the firing of Demos Parneros would have been different if Barnes and yeah. Noble, who we think has receipts based on what we've seen about countersuits, mm-hmm. if they really had the receipts on that dude. And they were firing him for the reason they say they are, or as part of it, is like, this guy was creating an unhealthy, toxic work environment to our, our staff as a sexual mm-hmm. harasser, and he's gots to go. Boy, think of right. how that story would have been different.
1: Yeah.
0: Really wouldn't different. And I don't want to be Machiavellian about it, but like I think that's something that people should consider and think about this. Well,
1: I think the, the age of the cover-up benefiting oh, you God. is over. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you right. Know, that's
1: really what it comes to. The cover down up,
0: to. it implies that the cover up was going to work in the long term, which I think probably right. it won't. Um,
1: no, I think we're past the point of like now, if there's, I mean, always, but yeah. now especially, if a cover up, if you know this stuff and you cover it up or you don't take action, it's going to come out. And when it comes out, you look worse yeah. and you really do have an opportunity to look decent. Right. You know,
0: like. It's never too late to do the right thing. That's what I mean. That's, right, the, exactly. that's the, old, the old saying. Let's do another sponsor and maybe. I don't know if it's happier, but like different kinds of stories. The Great Courses Plus is back. If you love to learn new things, you'll have so much fun exploring The Great Courses Plus. It's a video and streaming service that helps you discover new interests, pick up new hobbies. Maybe I could learn something about, well, anything that I don't already know about, which is most things, really. With fascinating insight from leading professors and experts, you get unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category like literature, history, science, cooking, and photography, and much more, because those aren't all the categories. There's more than those five. We recommend checking out the course, Life Lessons from the Great Books. Professor Rufus Fears draws you into the world of masterpieces like Macbeth, Brave New World, The Odyssey, and more, exploring the wisdom that can be gleaned from each story. When I used to teach a Great Books course, and we we know we did the history of Western literature from Homer to Virginia Woolf in, in the course of a year— the thing that really made the older books stick is that how many of them still felt like they were wrestling with questions that, you know, in refracted and reflected over time still feel like they're relevant. These are questions humans have been wrestling with since they knew even that there were questions to wrestle with. You know, In the Odyssey, what do you owe your country? What do you owe your colleagues? What do you owe your partner? in life? Can they be gone for 20 years and you're supposed to sit there and wait and like weave the whole time like Penelope did? What do you have to do to protect your family? Is that reasonable? What do you owe your neighbor? What do you owe your God, your spiritual belief? Like how much of yourself do you have to sacrifice for others? And it's all there from the very beginning. And this course walks you through those questions over time. Right now, you can start enjoying the Great Courses Plus for free. With an entire month of unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures, to get this special limited time offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot to start your free month. Okay. This is follow-up that all right. we must have, it must have been announced earlier. You put this in there. I, I mm-hmm. didn't see this, but kind of went out with yeah. a whimper rather than a bang in <laughs> how this right.
1: For a while, I think earlier this year, we were tracking um, that Aaron Sorkin is doing a stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, folks associated with the Harper Lee's estate were objecting to it. And there was going to be uh, like it was going to court and they were actually going to stage a reading of the play in court so that the judge can make a determination that must have happened. And the judge must have decided that it's fine because there's a piece in entertainment weekly online this week, and we'll have a a link to the full piece in the show notes. Um, The piece is about how Aaron Sorkin adapted to kill a mockingbird into being, you know, more appropriate for 2018, but buried in here is that the play is set to open on December 13th. So that's happening. It's going forward. We're just closing the loop. Um, I'm sad that we did not get like a breakdown account of what happened in that courtroom when they performed the play. Um, but yeah, my notes on the podcast agenda were like, this is happening because apparently it was fine. (laughs) So
0: yeah, it's going on. Um, I guess that, that the Lee estate, protested so much makes me way more interested mm-hmm. in this than I would have been had they not pro- And there's like <laughs> a little bit of a Streisand effect going yeah, on here. Yeah,
1: I was thinking the same. Like, I'm not terribly interested in seeing this, but I'm more interested than I would have been otherwise.
0: I'm not exactly clear. It sounds like that um, Scout and Dill and Jem are being played by adults as their adult selves and that there's a frame... Of the story, mm-hmm. you know, the main action of To Kill a Mockingbird, but it's played through a lens of time. Um, so that's interesting. I'll, I'll be curious to see the st- sort of the, um, the theater craft part of it I find to be interesting about like how they're dealing with. Because they said they didn't want 12 and 13 year olds playing. They didn't want them to be the leads for reasons I'm not sure are right, mm-hmm. ultimately, and couldn't be done. But I kind of understand, right? Um, but that... The book is told through the lens of memory, right? When he was thirteen, my mother my brother mm-hmm. Jim broke his arm just above the elbow. That's an older scout looking back on as we know from Ghost at a Watchman. An older scout is a sort of thing in the Harper Lee universe that exists. So it makes some sense to think of it this way. I'd be curious to see as a you know, just a storytelling mode what's going on here. Interesting choice for Sorkin. Um doesn't adapt other people's artistic works very often. He will adapt um, nonfiction, right? He'll work on that to, to create a story. Mm-hmm. But something that's overtly already a story, I don't know that I've seen before. I'm sure if I went and looked at the IMD page, IMDB page, but this is the highest profile. Also not a movie. I don't know if this is a preamble to if this goes well. There's a movie version of this, which would be interesting to think about. Um, but certainly in the world of Harper Lee, To Kill a Blocking Murder News, this is way more interesting to me than the regression to the mean um, PBS selection of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> so there's that follow up for everyone. It opens December 13th. Go get tickets if you can. I'm sure it'll be a very difficult uh, ticket t- to get, but we'll see. I'll be curious to see about the reviews. Um, I wanted to. F- well, Happy Muppet Arms. Uh, Woo! A, a lo- a long. Le- we don't do this very often. We could maybe do this more if we wanted to. Um, book new release news that um yes! we've been waiting. We wait for... We, this is unfair. Writers write at their own pace. It's not fair to say we've been anxious. But we're we've looking forward eager. to the next Aaron looking Morgan book. Like, whenever it yes. was going to come is fine. Um, and in November 2019, her next novel, After the Night Circus, will be released, called The Starless Sea. Uh, and it's a wholly original love story set in a secret underground world. Yes. Um, we'll put a link to the show notes. that the, Even the cover they have here is... Is, is provisional, like it's actually not a bad cover as these things no. go. But there's going to be something else. Um, Michelle, when I texted her this information, her immediate response was, "Will it be narrated by Jim Dale?" I think it's a <laughs> wonderful question. Um, as as many longtime listeners of the show know, there's a there's a bingo square that is that the Jim Dale's na- narration of the Night Circus is something mm-hmm. we talk about f- uh, for for reasons I I will defend to my dying <laughs> breath but there we go new novel from Aaron Morgenstern
1: <laughs> very exciting news and I think not just because the night circus was so wonderful and people have been you know excited for yeah. whatever Aaron Morgenstern will do next but that book like it occupies such an interesting place in readers imaginations yes. and also like, people ask us, you know, what can I read that's like the Night Circus? And you kind of don't have anything. Mm. It's really hard to find a read alike for that book, but it's also so widely readable and recommendable. But, yeah. um, like, I, expectations, I think, high hopes for Aaron Morgenstern for what this next book could be, could do. But I'm excited to see whatever. It is. I, I wouldn't have been shocked
0: um, either if this her next book would have been set in the world of the Night Circus, maybe different characters, mm-hmm. but sort of using the same world building and mythology. And this isn't. This is unrelated, which I think is brave. It would have been easy, oh, yeah. understandable and- at all to do like you know, from the wizarding world of J.K. Rowling, you know, from the night circus right. world of Aaron Morgenstern to do the yeah, same thing. But to, but to branch out, I think, is really brave and I'm really excited To exciting. create
1: a whole new world. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. That's Muppet Arms. And then we'll throw some um, brief Muppet Arms also for Michelle Obama's yeah. book, Becoming, which came out this week and um, went on to have... Uh, Barnes & Noble announced uh, on Monday that they had the most pre-order sales Amazing. for it of any adult book since *Ghost at a Watchman*, um, which *Ghost at a Watchman* went on to have Barnes and Noble's largest first day sales in history. A long, and this book long time. Yeah, is just um, becoming is just taking off. I haven't seen any numbers. Like right now, we're recording on right. Thursday. The book has been out for two days. Well, we'll start to get um, lists next over the weekend. We'll start to get weekend. numbers yeah. in the next week, um, but. It's everywhere. My Instagram feed, which certainly there's some echo chamber stuff happening there, but my social feeds are full of people reading it. I'm reading it. Amanda and I are going to see her this weekend. Star-studded
0: book Um, tour. $1,000 of tickets on StubHub to get uh, seats to the New York stuff.
1: I did not pay a thousand dollars. No, I mean that's not sticker the, price.
0: That's just like <laughs> aftermarket. The, people want to go the and they're DC trying to go ones, see her. But,
1: um, it's possible that I might die of joy, and so if that happens, it's been a really nice run. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> nice to know you. Yeah, um, yeah. Congr- not a bad way to to depart this mortal coil. Um, on the whole, if you had to do and it that you know,
1: way, I have to say, like, I want to see this book take the number one spot for the year and not just because I love Michelle Obama and want to see her be successful and widely read, but I think that it would do morale. Mm. It's a, It would do uh, some things for my morale and feelings about the world if the number one book of the year weren't a book called "Fear" about about Donald Trump. That'd you be know, an like, interesting. Story. If it story, could be uh, something positive and right. inspiring, more more um,
0: uh, for than again for something than against something. Right, kind of an idea. Something
1: encouraging, something positive that we can actually celebrate as the best-selling book of the year, like. That would be nice I'm I I'm am afraid
0: the only thing I think it would have a chance i 'm afraid it 's a little late in the year, like the, the advantage some of the other books had they 've had the whole year and those those weeks of two, three, four thousand sales now, if she sells a million copies in the first week, all bets are off um, then you 're off the chart chart a little bit, but fear had incredible sales and continues to sell. and just has more time to run. So that would be the only thing. That's true. I, I would like That's to, true. We, we, we maybe could have a moral victory, even if there's not sort of a, <laughs> if it's the fastest selling book of the year, Maybe right. we'll take yeah. Sure. It's kind of like the the Democrats taking you know, the house. It didn't take the whole thing, but like it's a sign of tides. There were turning. a lot
1: of pre-order like pre-order campaigns for becoming from indie bookstores yeah. and from big retailers. The publisher did a lot of work around it. Like I think it could happen. Um, I'm not going to be crushed if it doesn't happen, but I would like to see something that's not a book about Trump be the best book again, creator. or not best, but best. We've been doing
0: this almost 300 episodes, so. Uh, I feel like I've lived in this world for a long enough time that me figuring or learning something isn't just a sign that like, you know, I I fell off the turnip truck yesterday necessarily, Mm -hmm, which sometimes mm -hmm. I try to acknowledge if that's a thing. I feel like the word pre-order in the book business is a much bigger deal than it was when we started doing this. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. true, but I just feel like maybe it's because of technology. People don't have to go into the store or call in. They can just do it online. But like there's a lot of talk from authors about the best thing you could do is pre order my book and whatever. I just feel like there's yeah, a lot you know, more attention and awareness about it, the power and utility yes. of pre ordering there was.
1: Right. I was gonna say I think it's always been important, but authors and publishers have a lot more ways to make it happen now. Yeah. Like um in my bookseller days, which are now a decade ago, we would and that was just was during Twilight, like we would run pre order campaigns in in Barnes and Noble for like whatever the next Twilight book coming out was, or there were a couple Harry Potter releases as well. Um, And the store was promoting them of like pre-order your copy, make sure you get it. And uh, I think that that was kind of where it started yeah. and stopped. But now with social media and sort of direct contact with your readers, being able to encourage them to do it means the pre-order numbers yeah. are way bigger. Right. Well,
0: and they, frankly, I mean, go back before. to just, we talked about the Morgan Stern, You can find out about a book coming out a year right. from now in a way that would have been difficult in 1991 unless you happened right. to be in a bookstore and they knew like... I wouldn't. I haven't clicked through, but I wouldn't be surprised if on Amazon right now, there's a page for the Starless Sea that you could go pre-order right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gets, you know, as you know, I know this is going to be shock to you. I'm interested in publishing history. I don't know if you know this about me. And it makes me wonder, like, what, what's like the long history of, in 1941, we're like, or 1937, were people pre-ordering Gone with the Wind before it came out? I'd love to know that. It's a fascinating story.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I don't think yeah. so. Anyway,
0: <laughs> that's our show. Uh, emails <laughs> podcast at com. Holiday recommendation request. That's our number one, um, I don't know, request. Or, or it's a request request, weirdly. We're getting meta now. It's requests all the way down. Uh, you can find links to this, the links we talked about in this episode and to our great sponsors at com slash listen. We're going to talk to you guys on the other side of Thanksgiving. For all those of you celebrating out there, um, I hope you get some time to yourself to do the things that make you happy. Rebecca, I'll talk to you later.
1: Have a good one.